0: Well, hello. Thanks very much. Uh, My name's Matt. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here. It's my privilege today just to get to talk to you and uh, help us think together uh, about what the Bible has to say to us. And what I wanted to start with today is this idea that things sometimes take longer than you'd expect. Who has met the wonder that is Playmobil? Who's met Playmobil? Playmobil is glorious, isn't it? There's one time, um, I remember really clearly, uh, we had planned on giving our our lovely Heather a Playmobil hospital, and it was quite an epic hospital. It's actually even bigger than this hospital. And um, Christmas Eve came around, and we we looked at the box and we thought, you know, we should probably... Build this now rather than build it together in the morning because that's not that much fun. So, open the box, the Playmobil Hospital, in the instructions it says, allow three hours to build this. Um, this was about, ooh, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve as you like to do these things. We're like, it's okay, we built Pimmobile before, three hours. <laughs> I'll get this done in, I think, probably 45 minutes or so. Uh, two o'clock in the morning putting the final pieces on. We had, we had a lovely little kind of oxygen mask and things like that done, but it just took so much longer than we expected. And we're, we're working our way through the story uh, of Jesus as told by Luke. And the crowds who have seen Jesus teaching and working his miracles, they're increasingly understanding and seeing Jesus as Messiah. And Messiah is this term that means God's promised one, his chosen one, his um, deliverer. And his disciples, the ones who are following him closely, they certainly have in their minds, Jesus is this promised deliverer. One of them's even said it to him outright. And as a result, because of what's taught and what's understood about being Messiah in the time of Jesus, they expect him to begin his ruler's king when he arrives at Jerusalem. They're thinking when he reaches his destination, which is just a a few miles down a a road like this, when he reaches his destination in Jerusalem, we pick up the story here. Um, They think right away he's going to start the job of restoring God's people who right now are under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire. They're like another oppressed minority under these Romans who rule so much of the known world. And they're right. That Jesus, this Messiah King, is going to defeat all the enemies of God's people. But what they don't understand is that it is going to take a whole lot longer than they expect. So we're going to read together a little section Jesus uses to teach about this. Joe's going to come and help us. And this is in Luke um, chapter 20 and verse 9. Chapter 20, that's a big 20 you're looking for, on page 1054, if you've got these churchy blue Bibles. A big 20 and then a small 9, right at the bottom, right of page 1054.
1: While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, "'Sir, your mina has earned ten more.' "'Well done, my good servant,' his master replied. "'Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, "'take charge of ten cities.' The second came and said, "'Sir, your mina has earned five more.' His master answered, "'You take charge of five cities.' Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you do not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew." Did you? That I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me.
0: Thanks, Joe. Now, the story Jesus tells us here is about someone who is becoming king. Uh, He tells us how their servants and their subjects behave while this process is happening, while he's away in a far country, and what's going to be the results for each of them when he gets back. And I think the passage asks us three big questions. And the first one is, do we accept that he is king? Right? Because in this story, the guy going off to another country to be appointed king, Jesus is talking about himself. He's knowing what's coming next. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he's not going to declare himself king, wick out a massive sword, and start smiting the Romans. That's not what's going to happen there. Instead, to the dismay of his followers, he's going to die. Uh, he's going to die a, a terrible death, even a, a criminal's death, at the hands of the religious and civil authorities. But that is not the end of the story. The, the, the people who think they can put an end to him, They're going to be completely wrong. Instead, he's going to rise again three days later. He's going to ascend to heaven, and there he'll be appointed king. And then one day, he's going to come back victorious, mighty to judge. It'll be like he's gone to another country first to be appointed king, and then he'll come back. See how that connects to the story Jesus is telling here? This is the gap between Jesus' death and his return as the victorious and conquering king. So when he speaks about his servants while he's away and what his servants do while he's away, he's telling us about his followers, the servants of God, and how they should conduct themselves while he's away, before he returns. And, and let's be honest, it, it can seem like it just doesn't matter what people do while the king's away, particularly when the king has been gone a, a long time, right? I mean, it's, it's 2020, over 2,000 years Picture kids left in the classroom when the teacher goes to, I don't know, see the headmaster for something. Okay, The kids are left behind in the classroom. It's been calm for, what, 30 seconds after the guy's out the door. And then it begins. Someone says something. Somebody else throws something. And then, you know, in five minutes' time, it's all out mayhem. Anything could be happening. Now imagine the teacher's been gone for 2,000 years. Is he going to come back to even a classroom? The place is going to be destroyed. So do you ever wonder if God were real? Well, how come all the people who ignore him, all the people who reject him, even the people who are rude about him, how come they're all doing just fine? Well, Jesus pictures that for us here. This king-to-be, his subjects object violently to him. Look at that in verse 14. They hate him, it says. They reject him as king. We don't want this man to be our king, they say. People do get to object. People get to act like there is no king at all for a time. But it doesn't change the truth. See, in verse 14, it calls them his subjects. His subjects hated him as much as they didn't want him as king. In the end, it didn't make any difference. They are still his subjects. It's like, it's like objecting to gravity, declaring, I'm not under the power of gravity, and then stepping right out of a plane. Well, things might look like they're going your way for a while. But then you realize there's something big coming up your way fast. And that ground that seems so far away at the beginning, well, it's coming for you. The Bible tells us God, as the creator of everything, is its rightful ruler. He made it and it's his to do with as he pleases. And he's given all power and authority to Jesus. He's made Jesus king. And the question for us is, do you accept that the king has a right to rule his creation? He has a right to rule over you. And he's exercising that right. He has a way he wants you to live. But whether you accept it or not, it doesn't change the truth. You might be able to ignore that truth for a while, but the ground is coming up at you. One day the king will return. Jesus' story doesn't mince words in speaking about what that will be like, how he'll respond to those who hated and rejected him. I bet verse 27 doesn't get many pictures in children's Bibles. Verse 27. What am I thinking? It's not verse 27 at all, is it? That must be in entirely the wrong section of the Bible here. Chapter Chapter 19, not chapter 20. Did I send you all to chapter 19? That is outrageous. Do you know... I'll go to chapter 19 instead. Why don't you read the passage we're actually reading instead? Joe did read the right passage. It's just me pointing at the wrong page and everything. I was wondering, kind of, where is that verse I was looking for? And it really wasn't there. It's a high skill moment. <clears throat> you can tell. You can tell. It's a, it's a new year and we're a bit fresh at these things. Verse 27, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's not... That's not chill. That's not like, whatever, I don't mind, um, I'm, I'm, I'm nice. That is the king demanding respect and obedience. So that's the first question the passage has for us. Do you accept the king? Because he's coming. The, the second question it asks us is, do we really know the king? See, there are different people pictured as servants in Jesus' story here. Um, verse 13 tells us there are 10 servants. Each one's entrusted with Amina. Amina's a bunch of money. It's about 100 days wages. So it's quite a lot. Um, But it's not earth-shattering. In fact, the the king later on describes these minas they've been looking after as a small matter. This is a small thing looking after this, a very small matter. Each servant gets entrusted with some dosh. Each servant is given the same unmistakable, clear instructions about what to do. Put this money to work. That's verse 13. Same money, same orders, very different responses. We only get to see three servants uh, up close and examine what's going on with them. But they show us everything we need to get Jesus' point. Two get busy trading, so it seems. They take what's been entrusted to them and they go and make more. Uh, One makes ten times as much. He can have my pension. Thanks very much. I'd appreciate that. One makes five times as much. That's not too shabby either. How do you go about making money with money? Well, back in the day, I imagine you could lend it to a spice trader who'd take it to a far country and buy more spices, bring them back and have more to sell and share some of the profits with you. Or you could lend it to a baker who could buy more ingredients, bake more bread, sell more bread, and share some of the profits with you. But in each of those things, there's a measure of risk. What if he's robbed on the road to the far country? What if what if the baker bakes more bread but nobody wants it? It's not bread season. I think those servants making money would have taken some risks, particularly to make those big returns. They would have taken some risks. But the third one we see takes a radically different approach. Do you know what he does to begin with? It might seem quite clever. It might seem quite admirable. He has not taken any risks. I've been entrusted with some serious money. What do I need to do with this? Well, I need to keep it safe. Let me wrap it up. Let me hide it away. I don't want to take any risks with this master's money. None of it is going to be lost. But the problem here is that that is not what he's been asked to do. Back in verse 13, that is hardly putting the money to work, is it? It's putting that money to rest. When the king comes back, he's delighted with the first two, even though they took risks and he gives each of them a vast promotion. You made 10, mean a nice job, take charge of 10 cities. Imagine taking charge of 10 cities. You made five, nice job, take charge of five cities. The third one, do you know what he's in for? A right royal roasting. The, the third guy explains what he did in verse 20. He says, I kept your money laid away nice and safe in a piece of cloth. And then he explains why. Why would you do something like that? Because I was afraid of you. Because you're a hard man. Maybe he's so afraid of losing even any of the king's money that he dare not take any risk with it at all. But when he calls the king a hard man, that's not in the sense of the guy with the shaven head and tats who's going to end up in prison shortly. It's in the sense of somebody who is super demanding, a difficult boss, somebody who pays you for 40 hours, expects 60. Um, A teacher who demands you spend six hours on your art homework drawing an apple. I mean, seriously, perhaps, just perhaps. This servant is daring to suggest the king is even a cheat a fraud. You take out what you did not put in. You reap what you did not sow. Some commentators I read suggest these terms essentially describe theft. He's a hard man in that he is wanting more than is right. Is that servant right about the king? Would you, would you even want to serve a king like that? Who'd be the servant of a king like that? But then think about this, if you did actually have a king like that, would you dare not to serve him? If you knew he was a hard and a demanding king, if you knew he was a harsh master who wants more than he put in, would you really just sit on what he entrusted to you, ignore his plain command to put it to work? I think you're more likely to run away, or at least to try and do something, not nothing. That's precisely the point the master makes back to the servant. Did you really think I was like that? Do you really think I was so harsh, so mean, so demanding? If you did, surely you would have done something with my money, not nothing. So what's going on with that third servant? Did he really think the king was harsh like that? Doesn't seem to make sense of his actions. But then he didn't blow the money either, right? He didn't just spend it as if it were his own. He didn't just run away. He sat on it. It doesn't seem to make any sense. His actions don't seem... Logical. They don't seem like they follow through in what he says he believes. But whatever the case is there, the king is not letting him off. No cities for him to take charge of? Zero. No mina of money to manage either. It's taken away. It's given to the one who has 10 and 10 cities to look after. That guy is going to be busy. This servant is a servant no more. He's left with nothing. In fact, oddly, there's a detail here. He's described as the servant who has nothing, even before his money is taken away. You see that in verse 26? The one who has nothing. Things could have been so different if he'd only obeyed the king. But here's the thing. See, he doesn't really know the king. That seems to be what it came down to in the end whether these servants really knew the king or not he has nothing in that he didn't really ever understand who the king was He's not a harsh man who takes not what's not his but he's a, a wonderfully generous king who entrusts us with his things with what's not ours who leaves us with what's been gained see the servant who made 10 he still has those 10 when he gets one more and then he gives even more that's hardly a harsh grabbing master Taking out what he didn't put in. So the question is, do you really know the king? That's what the passage asks us. What sort of king do you think you have? How do you picture God if if, if there was a God? What sort of God do you imagine he might be? Is he harsh? Is he busy taking away? Things that's not really his. Is he busy piling more and more demands on us for his own benefit? Does he take out what he didn't put in? Does he reap what he didn't sow? Is that is that how we picture God sometimes? Is his big plan just to spoil all our fun, just to say no to a long list of things that would bring joy into life, and then give us an impossible to-do list? Berate us when we don't deliver, demand we dance to his tune. Is it, it, the God you imagine all commandments and all law? Perhaps that is how you picture God. I think it is surprisingly easy to have that sort of picture of God, particularly maybe if you grew up in the church. But if there was a God like that, then how would you need to live? busting a gut for him, right? That's the only way that would make sense. Pushing, pushing to tick every one of those boxes. Living your life in fear. Do you really live that way? Or is the way you're actually living make no sense if you did believe that about God? Is your life kind of illogical like this third servant who says he believes he's got a harsh master but then acts like he's got nothing to do with him? So the problem with having your head in the sand like that, saying one thing and doing another, is the king is coming back. This third servant was judged by his own words. If you believe in a God who makes demands like that, are you ready to meet him? The good news of the Christian gospel is that in Jesus Christ, you don't need to meet your king that way. The response of the... King, to the other servants, pictures another kind of king. The kind of king Jesus is. The kind of king who says, well done. Good and faithful servant. The kind of king who lets us keep what really is rightfully his. Like the servant keeps the ten minas that he'd earned with the king's money. The kind of king who gives us more than we deserve. So much more if we only will truly know him. Like the king gave the servant cities in places of small change. So do you accept that there is a king? Do you really know who this king is? One last question for us in this passage. Will you join this king? See, Jesus tells the parable to correct people's understanding and expectation for what's going to happen next in Jerusalem. But he also tells it to a crowd who have just seen him. It was Zacchaeus. And declare he came to seek and save the lost. That's verse 10, just before this passage. And this passage is deliberately set in that context. While they were listening to this, it begins with. So that in their minds is fresh this idea that Jesus is the sort of king who comes to seek and save the lost. He doesn't crack the whip to drive us faster, always demanding a perfect 10. He's a king who became a servant. He's a king who came not as a king but as a commoner. He's a king who came to people who hated him, who rejected him. A king who didn't come with a sword to destroy them but who came to seek and to save them. He's a king who will lay down his life for his people in Jerusalem just ahead. Think about this story that Jesus tells here. When the king instructs, the, he entrusts the same thing to each of his servants. As we close, I want us to think about what is that picture? What sort of thing is it that could be multiplied five times, ten times when it's put to work? What is it that Jesus consistently entrusts to each one of his followers? was well, plain we're not all resourced equally financially, are we? So it's not simply money or resources. that's in view with each one getting the same. We're not all equally gifted, are we, for everything I can do? There's somebody else who could do it so much better. So many things I can't do. So it's not gifting, it's not talent, it's not simply being alive, having the opportunity which comes from that, because all of the king's subjects are alive, not just the servants. I think it's the message about this king, a king who came as a servant to seek and save the lost, a king who would give his life so that we could have life, a king filled with grace and love, not with harshness and demands. That's why... The third servant, the one who hid what was entrusted to him, in the story is described as one who had nothing. He doesn't have the gift the king gives to all his servants, the true message about Jesus. And the message is wonderful in that it can be multiplied. When we take a risk to share it, when we dare to expose to others the message we've been gifted with, it can become their message too. So here's where we close today is we'll You join the king. If you know him, if you truly know him, then you've been given something with amazing potential. Something which can multiply. You've been given a message about who he really is. Not the harsh, demanding one who takes out what he did not put in and gives us impossible lists. Although it takes some risk and some guts, it's a message worth sharing Because it's a message that can liberate others. Particularly if their view of the king is this harsh and demanding one. If there are people who don't truly know the king. We have a message worth sharing. We have a, a, a hope worth sharing. So as we begin a new year. We begin again on the same track that we've been on as a church. From the beginning. We begin with the goal of sharing our hope. Like it says over the door on your way out. As a reminder to us all. Now, if you want to get practical, if you want to challenge and support one another in sharing this message, then come and join our evening gatherings when they start back up in just a few weeks. There we share stories about how we're pursuing this goal um, of when we win, uh, of when we don't win. There in our small groups, we challenge one another and we support one another in putting this into practice, putting the message we've been given to, to work. Come and get engaged in the new year. Commit to spurring one another on in the new year. Yes, it will take up a bit more of your Sunday. And yeah, you might not find it easy. I'll tell you what, most of us do not find this challenge of sharing the message easy. But this is the big work of our lives. This is the key task we've been instructed with. This is the key mission the king has given us. Put this to work, he says, until I come back. Make that your mission this year. Just uh, 30 seconds there to reflect. Think about what the king says, what it has to do with you, and then I'll pray.